thank you guys for praying for him. We got some good time with him, and Heather's uh, family's doing well as well. Uh, she lost her grandmother this past week, and we were able to go and be with her family in Shelby uh, this past weekend as well. So thank you for all your prayers and your support. With that, Glenn did an excellent job as always. Uh, he's really an excellent minister. We're so glad that he could fill the pulpit for us. Uh, I don't think Glenn's here today, but if you're watching, Glenn, you did awesome, man. Thank you so much. Um, so if you'll take your bulletin, and if you'll just open your bulletin, and if you'll take the pink sheet out and just flip that over on the back where there's a blank piece of paper, uh, you're going to need that this morning uh, because we're going to go in a different direction with the sermon, if that's okay. And um, this is always intimidating for me when I feel like the Lord says to do this, but I want to be obedient this morning and do that. Um, I know it's Mother's Day, and a lot of you probably came looking to hear a good Mother's Day sermon, and uh, I'll tuck that away, and maybe I'll pull that out uh, in, in a few weeks or something like that. But um, just some things changed for me and changed for us as a congregation um, on Friday afternoon. You know, for me, um, I was at Shelby at, at Heather's family, and I got an email on my phone that just said that um, this was a person just trying to get in touch with me as a pastor of Trinity, uh, that Myra had been in a car accident, had been killed. And um, it's one of those things when you, you read something like that, uh, your stomach just drops and you're thinking, um, this has got to be a mistake or, you know, this, this can't be uh, what's happening. So I just called the phone number in the email and I uh, got one of Myra's friends and evidently uh, about 2.30 on, on Friday afternoon, Myra was, was making a left turn in traffic and was hit head on and was killed. And um, through some convergence of circumstances, the coroner and Sumter uh, just happened to know Myra's best friend and contacted her and was able to get in touch with us. And so for me, um, if you haven't got a chance to get to know Myra yet, she's, she's only been our congregation about four years, but she's really had this just outsized impact on a lot of our people. And she was just one of those personalities, just one of those women that walked with the Lord, that Jesus just flowed out of her just in every context that she was in. And it was just amazing to me to see her. I mean, I best knew her in our children's Sunday school. Uh, she, she taught my son Knox uh, for a couple years in children's Sunday school. And the thing that always stuck out to me about Myra is most Sundays, the trip from church to home was filled with him talking about Myra and what Myra had taught him. And what Myra had said to him and how that had stuck out to him and the lesson they learned and and things like that. And I know for a number of your children, it was the exact same way. Some of you got to serve alongside Myra in VBS. I know her and Edna got to work with the youngest kids during VBS. And she just threw herself into that with passion. You know, just this past Sunday, uh, Myra was helping with our English as a second language class with, with Scott and Melissa Smith. They've been doing that uh, every single week, just doing their best to, to help our Hispanic community grow in their, their English knowledge. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I just came in for a meeting, and I walked into the G building, and I, I just kind of peeked in that room, and I saw Melissa and Scott and, and Myra just really just teaching with this passion. She was always just alive with this passion for the things that God had called her to do. And, you know, we gather on Wednesday nights for prayer. Myra would be here praying with us. You know, Myra's such an encourager. So for me, me, as I got that news, and then as I confirmed that, just talking to her friend, you know, these are the things that, that just kept going through my mind. My, what kept running through my heart and mind was why. You know, why, Lord? You know, why this woman 
who just makes this outsized impact on you, Lord? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would, why would this happen? And so as I, I called uh, just people in the church I felt like would need to know, as I made those phone calls and just called one after the other, that's all that could, could go through my mind was why, was why. And so as I spent time just trying to process that Friday and then into Saturday, one passage of Scripture just kept coming to my mind again and again. It's the one I want to share with you this morning. It's in John chapter 11. And it's a familiar story that uh, you've, you've probably heard a number of times. I know I've preached in this pulpit on this story a number of times, but it's the one that the Lord kept speaking to me as I kept wrestling with that question of why. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been in a theme together. We've been talking about the ways of Jesus in relationship. We've been talking about how Jesus interacted with people. How did he interact with the people that he was closest to, the people that he loved, the people that he poured his life into. We've looked at how he interacted with people who betrayed him and who basically set themselves up as his enemies. How did Jesus love them? How does Jesus treat us when we're caught in sin and when we're in bondage to darkness? How does Jesus interact with us? What is the way of Jesus in relationship? And the reason we've been focusing on this is our, our culture, our country, our world needs to see healthy people relate to each other in healthy ways. And there is no better teacher to show what healthy relationship is than Jesus. There's no better teacher than Jesus. And there's no better way to understand how Jesus related to people than to see his life laid out in the word of God. And scripture is very clear. The gospels paint this amazing picture of three years of Jesus' life interacting with people of all shades and colors, backgrounds, rich and poor, people who are close to God, people who are far from God. You see Jesus intimately interacting with different people and the heart of God is reflected through him again and again. And that is the model that we need. And what's interesting is, as I went to this passage that the Lord laid on my heart in John 11, what I saw was the way of Jesus in relationship when we don't understand. Like, how does Jesus interact with us? How does he speak to us? What does he do in our life when we don't understand what's going on around us and what he's doing? And I think this passage models this for us in so many ways. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 11. That's where we'll camp out there. But I have been challenging you to memorize a couple of verses during this sermon series. And it's out of Psalm chapter 25, verse 4 and 5, this beautiful prayer that David prays. And this is what he says. He says, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For your God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. David just pours out this thing and says, listen, God, I want you to show me your ways. I know my ways. I want to know your ways. Show me where you walk. Where do you go? Where do your feet trot? I want to go to those places. Guide me in your truth. I understand how I view reality, but I want to be guided in your truth. Show me those things. Why? Because my hope is in you all day long. My hope is in you. Think about who wrote that. King David, the head of the army, the, the leader of Jerusalem, the one who had built up the palace, who had every advantage in his day. An army at his back, people ready to serve him. What does he say? He doesn't say, my hope is in this fortress. My hope is in these armies. What does he say? My hope is in you. Teach me your ways. My hope is in you. And we want that to become the prayer of our heart. We want Jesus to teach us his ways. 
in every area of our life, and especially when it comes to relationships. So John chapter 11, let me just set the tone for you a little bit. Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry. So he's been traveling with, we, especially the 12, we know that, but he also had other men and women that followed him. And these, these loyal followers have been traveling with him almost two and a half years now. And what we find in the ministry of Jesus is that there were some folks that Jesus just seemed to connect with differently. And there's one family that seemed to have this intimate connection with Jesus more than any other family, and that's the family of Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And we see at different times in the Gospels where he interacts with them. You remember this story, right, where Jesus comes into the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he's teaching, and Martha is so honored to have Jesus and his followers in the house. She's trying to get everything ready. She's cooking the fried chicken. She's getting the mashed potatoes ready. I mean, she's at work. And as Jesus is teaching, her sister Mary is sitting at his feet and listening, and she comes into the room and she says, Hey, Jesus, I need you to tell my sister she needs to come help me in the kitchen. I mean, we got macaroni and cheese in the oven. I need some help. And Jesus says to her, Martha, you're worried about many things, but only one thing is needed. Only one thing. Mary's chosen what is better. Sitting at my feet, Mary's chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You remember two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. And when we did that, one of the things that we saw was Jesus in the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And Mary takes a huge pint of perfume and breaks it and pours it on Jesus' feet. Remember that as this extravagant act of worship, showing her love and devotion and gratitude towards Jesus. And remember, Judas tries to rebuke her, and he ends up the one getting rebuked by Jesus. But in this story... Now there's a different circumstance that's taking place. Jesus isn't with them. He's away from them. And look at what it says. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. And he was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. You've got to get that. This is not just someone. This isn't just a passing person. This is a close, intimate friend of Jesus. He loves this family. He had poured his life into them. They had poured their life into him. I wonder how many times he had stayed in their home, how many late-night conversations had had around their table. He loved Lazarus. Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, It's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Do you see the theme John's building here? These aren't ordinary people. He loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. So as we talk about the ways of Jesus... And how different the ways of Jesus are from our ways. Here's a glaring example. Because if my friends were sick and I felt that I had the ability to intervene in that and to to help prevent that sickness from going any further, in my humanness, I would have got on the road right then. But Jesus didn't act out of his humanness. The ways of Jesus were different. The ways of Jesus could feel passion and love for others. 
But the ways of Jesus always focused on the ways of the Father first. So Jesus understood what was happening, and it's clear he knew God had a plan and what God was going to do. So the way of Jesus was not to rush to his friends, but to delay and obey his Father. That's the way of Jesus. Isn't that so different than our ways? We must learn the ways of Jesus. Verse 7, then he said to the disciples, I'm sorry, verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. But his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. So understand, Jesus is trying to communicate, Lazarus has died. And his disciples don't understand Jesus, and they don't understand the plan. So right from the get-go, there is a misunderstanding of what is happening. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So now he's really missed it. Jesus tries to be soft and then he's, he's point blank and then Thomas spiritualizes that and now he's, he's missed that. He's misunderstood Jesus again. Again in that short interaction. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So far, so good. I mean, true, two incredibly true statements about Jesus. Had Jesus been there, he could have saved Lazarus. And... That God will give Jesus whatever he asks. So, so far we're good. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Again, misunderstanding what he's saying. Not understanding what God's doing. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. It seems that Martha had picked up a few things since that time of working hard in the kitchen, right? It sounded like she had learned to sit at the feet of Jesus because she's making this incredible confession of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. She had picked up a few things in their time together. Verse 28. 
After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, and he's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when Jesus, who had been with Mary in the house, I'm sorry, when the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Make note of that. The first time that we're told that Jesus is deeply moved in response to their weeping. Verse 34. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied. So in Jewish culture, when someone would die, they would take the body and they would wrap it in strips of cloth. And within those strips of cloth, they would take certain plants and spices and they would interweave it in those wrappings. Because as you can imagine, Israel, for the most part of the year, is a very warm culture. And so the bodies would start to smell because of the hot weather. And part of the burial process, they would just wrap it in these spices. And then this is what they would do. They had these family tombs, so they would cut these tombs out of rocks. And it would have almost like a walk-in kind of room. And then off the sides of each of that room, they would have little uh, kind of rectangles carved into the wall. And this is what they would do. They would have a rectangle carved for each of the family members. And what they would do is, when someone died, they would wrap the body, and they would lay the body in that opening area for about a year until the body decayed down to a certain point. And then they would come back in a year and they would take the bones of that body and they would either place the body in a stone box, what was literally called a bone box, or if they weren't wealthy enough to do that, then they would just take the bones and they would place it in one of those side tunnels. And so they'd either take the bone box or they would take the bones and then they would put that ancestor in that part of the tunnel and then your entire family's remains would be in one place. Does that make sense? So what they've done, understand what they've done. It's now four days. He's been wrapped. He's in that waiting area, and they've already rolled the stone in place. And he says to them, where, where have you laid him? In other words, where's the family grave? Where's the tomb? Where, where's the cave? And they say, come and see. Verse 35, shortest verse in all of Scripture. And I think one of the most poignant, Jesus wept. So second time now, he's responding to the circumstance. He's deeply moved. Now he's weeping at what's taking place. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, and you have to know Jesus heard this. Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. So third time now, Jesus is responding to what's happening with deep passion, deep weeping, deep grief. Look at this. 
Take the stone away, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there's a bad odor for he's been dead for four days. So again, not understanding. Jesus has just said, your brother will live. Do you trust me? She says, yes, I believe in you. Then he says, roll the stone away. And, and she says, no way, his body stinks. She doesn't understand what he's doing. She doesn't understand the plan. She doesn't get it. But listen to Jesus' response. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and with a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. It's an amazing miracle that takes place in Martha and Mary and Lazarus' life. And we're all familiar with this story, but there's one thing I want to hone on in on this morning. Is why was Jesus so overcome with emotion? Three different times we're told he weeps or he's troubled in spirit or he's overwhelmed with emotion. Why is Jesus overwhelmed with emotion? It would seem that he's responding to the emotion of the moment. That he's filled with grief because Martha and Mary is filled with grief. But that doesn't make sense. And here's why. If, if you look at this passage all the way through, it's clear from the beginning of this that the Father had already revealed to Jesus what was going to happen. That Lazarus was going to die, that he'd be raised from the dead, that this was going to glorify the Father. So Jesus was not weeping and upset that Lazarus was dead because Jesus knew what was going to happen. That's not what he was upset about. He wasn't sad for his loss of Lazarus. Remember, the Jews thought that when they saw him weeping, they said, look at how he loved him. Jesus wasn't weeping because Lazarus had died. He knew Lazarus was going to come back from the dead in just moments. That's not why he was crying. That's not why he was overcome with emotion. So why was he weeping? Why was he overcome with emotion? Here's why. Because they didn't understand what he was doing. And they didn't understand the plan of God. And Jesus was moved to tears at the pain they felt when they did not understand what God was doing. And you have to understand this. Because many of you are walking through things that you cannot understand the plan of God. You have no idea what God is doing. And it has brought the heaviest weight on your life you've ever felt. And you are holding on to your faith with everything that you've got. You are fighting for your belief in the Lord and everything you ever learned about Scripture. You're fighting with all your heart and mind. You're weeping and now you're crying yourself to, to sleep at night. I want you to understand something. Jesus is moved by your tears. He empathizes with your lack of understanding. He understands that. He feels that. He weeps with you. That is the way of Jesus when we don't understand. It is not to say, buck up. Get your act together. Just hang on. It's not what he does. He meets us right 
where we are, just like when his disciples didn't understand, he just kept going. When he gets there and Martha didn't understand, he just kept going. When Mary didn't understand, he just kept going. When the Jews didn't understand, he just kept going. And he empathized with every single one of their pains and griefs because they did not understand what the plan of God was and what God was doing among them. He empathized. You know what the Lord just revealed to me? He empathized with me Friday afternoon when I got that email and my stomach just dropped and I couldn't understand why the Lord would allow Myra to be taken like that. And then he was with every single one of us that I had to call this week and say, listen, Myra was killed in a car accident. He was right there. He was weeping and he was feeling that right with us. He was right there with my 10-year-old son who I had to take out on the porch and have the third talk about someone close to him dying. Miss Joyce, his grandmother, and now Myra in a month and a half. And I had to understand that at 10 years old, he's not going to understand this. He's not going to get this. But Jesus is right there with him, just like he's right there with me. And his lack of understanding is no different than my lack of understanding. And Jesus relates to both of us the exact same way. That is Jesus. That's Jesus. And I want you to see Paul's take on this. But the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul about suffering and how God responds in all of that. So I want you to turn to the right in your Bible to Romans chapter 8. I know we're reading a lot of scripture today, but you know what? Sometimes scripture has more things to say than the pastor does. And that's okay. As a pastor, it's okay. Romans chapter 8, down to verse 18. If anybody knew suffering, it was Paul. And if anybody knew Jesus, it was Paul. Romans 8.18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subject to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we Eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. What a beautiful picture that Paul paints. He says, listen, this entire world, God's creation that he made good, has been infected by sin because of our choices. And this creation is groaning and waiting for the day when God will redeem all of this. Where he will come back and he will set all of this brokenness right. And where his children, his bright children that he has bought by his own blood will be revealed to the earth. And reconciliation will take place. The end will come. Even creation is groaning for that to happen. And we're groaning. 
Isn't that amazing? The world groans in hope for what God will bring, and we're groaning in our suffering for deliverance and the hope that God will bring. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So in our suffering, we cling to our hope. We hold on to Jesus. We hold on to the hope of our salvation. We hold on to what he has shown us through the word, what he's done in our life and saving us. We hold on. And look at what happens as we wait patiently, as we groan inwardly. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Do you see that? Creation groans. We groan. And how does the Spirit respond? He groans in prayer on our behalf. Is that not beautiful? You want to know the way of God in your suffering? The way of God when you don't understand? In all of your groaning and suffering, He groans in prayer on your behalf. Look at this. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. You have to get this. When the Spirit's praying for you, here's what he's doing. Here's what he's doing. He is not praying that happiness comes to your life. He's not even praying for the resolution of your circumstances. He is praying that the will of God be fully done in your life. Why? Because the will of God fully done in your life is always the best. It's always the best. No matter how much it hurts now, the will of God fully realized in your life is always the best. And the Spirit is praying that you won't quit, that you'll hold on, that you have all the strength you need to walk with Him and to walk with Jesus and trust in the Father until the will of God is revealed in your life. God's will is always the best for you. And let's look at what that will is. You ready? Verse 28. And we know that in all things, please take your pen, because you've got to hear this, in all things, all things. Then say some things, then say a few things, then say the easy things. It says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You know what it says and what it doesn't say? Here's what it doesn't say. It does not say that all things are good. That's not what it says. There are some things in our life that are just wicked and broken and terrible and sin-filled and we, we live in a broken down world and we're infected by it. All things are not good, but you know what my God does? This is his best trick. He can take all things and make good. He can take all things and make good for those who love him. You tell me, he can, he can take my divorce and he can make good? Absolutely! I can introduce you to people in this room who he's made good out of their divorce. Ugly, brokenness, and he's made good. Are you saying that he can make good out of my MS diagnosis? Absolutely he can make good out of that. Absolutely he can. Are you saying that in my broken relationship with my children, God can make good? Yes, he can. Are you telling me that in Myra's car wreck, the loss of Myra, that God can make good out of that? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. That wasn't good, 
but Jesus can make good. It's his best trick. It's his best trick. And what's the good that he's making? What's the good? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What is Jesus' highest good for you always? What is always his will? For you to become more like Jesus. To be conformed to the image and mold of Jesus. My daughter plays with Play-Doh. Some of your daughters do too, and your sons. And she has this kit that comes with these molds. And what you do is you take a little ball of Play-Doh, you put it in the middle of the mold, and then you close the mold, and then Play-Doh squishes out the sides of the mold, right? And you peel off the Play-Doh on the side, and when you open it up, you've got a perfect little indention of whatever that mold was meant to be. That's what God wants to do with you. He wants to take Matt Walton and Evelyn Wilson and Gary Fowler, and he wants to take us, and he wants to press us into the mold of Jesus. And he wants to press that down, and all the things that don't please him about Matt Walton and Evelyn Wilson and Gary Fowler come squishing out the side, and he pulls that away so that when he opens up that mold, Matt Walton and Gary Fowler and Evelyn Wilson look like Jesus. And if you think that's a pleasant process, read your Bible. It's not a present present. Uh, blah, blah. I can't even say it. It's not a pleasant process. It's painful. When the parts of Matt Walton that don't please him are torn away, that's painful. It takes pressure to be conformed to the image of Jesus. It takes difficulty. But praise God, he uses the brokenness of this world to make that good out of us. And I've got news for you. He's not going to stop until you look like Jesus. He's not going to stop. But I don't want him to. Our goal is to be like Jesus. To be less like me every day. So you're going to have to write this down because I don't know if they're up here or not. Well, let's see. But the ways of Jesus in relationship when we don't understand, when we don't get it, just want to give you these four takeaways and make sure you understand. The first is this. When we can't understand God's plan, he is deeply moved by that. We're good Presbyterians. We believe in the sovereignty of God. But sometimes we take the sovereignty of God and we act like God sits on his throne and doesn't care about anything that happens down here. And that's just not scripture. We can affirm the sovereignty of God and still believe that God's plan is for our good and that God is deeply involved in what is happening even when it hurts. And when we don't understand his plan, he is deeply moved by that. He is not running away from you. He is drawing near to you. That is the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. Number two, when we groan in our waiting, he prays for us. When we groan in our suffering and when we're waiting for God to move, he is praying for us. And you know, I can ask, I can say, Raymond, pray for me. I can say, Brian, pray for me. And, and I trust that they will, but they're not going to stay on their knees all day long. They're, they're not going to be able to pray perfectly according to the will of God because they don't know perfectly the will of God. The Holy Spirit 
never stops praying for us. And not just that, he's always praying perfectly in accordance with the will of God. Always. Always. He's the perfect prayer warrior for you. Number two, or three, when we suffer, he works all things together for good. All things. Again, not everything is good, but he can work all things together for good. And that is our hope. That's our hope. And number four, his greatest good for us is always that we become more like Jesus. It's always that we become more like Jesus. Why did we do this series in the first place? Why would we do four or five weeks on the way of Jesus in relationships? Because we have one goal, that you and I become more like Jesus, specifically in our relationships. But overall, the way of Jesus is to what we are called. And God is going to help us by conforming us to Jesus' likeness. And for many of us, you never knew that the God who you've heard about or the God that your parents have told you about or the God that you know people go to church to worship, some of you have never heard that that God understands your pain and that he empathizes and weeps with you when you don't understand. Some of you can't look past the pain that you're dealing with and you can't begin to understand how this will ever be different. You need to understand Jesus is here with you and that he wants relationship with you. You don't have to earn his relationship. You couldn't do that anyway. He doesn't love you because of the good things you've done. He loves you because of the good things Jesus has done. And he offers you relationship. And this is how we walk into that. God himself became a man as Jesus Christ. He lived on this earth for 33 years. He never one time sinned and dishonored the Lord. At the end of that life, he sacrificed his life on the cross. Not because he had to. He did not have to die for his sins. He died for your sins and for mine. And for all of us who believe that to be true and act on that as if our life depends on it, Jesus will save us. He will forgive our sin. He will begin relationship with us and he will show us what it means to be conformed to his image day by day. And then we spend the rest of our life submitting to his will, seeing God's best poured out on us, living in the joy and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, doing his work and helping other people enter into that relationship too. That's what Jesus offers us today. It's freely extended to us and this is a chance for us to respond. So our praise team is going to come and they're going to lead us in a final song. And as they do that, we need to respond in any way that the Lord's leading us. Our elders and their wives will be around the sanctuary. I'll be here if you want to pray with me. If you want to come to the altar or right where you are, if you want to respond to the Lord's invitation of salvation, this is your opportunity to do that. So let's stand and let's obey the Lord in anything he's saying to our heart and mind this morning.